there's a popular phrase that's used in sports and business is called being in the zone. Those of you that have ever been in sports or um, in some sort of a performance time know that there is a time when everything is clicking and you're doing everything right. I can remember, for example, my senior year in high school playing baseball. It seemed that every baseball that came from the pitcher's hand was about this big around. In fact, at one point during the season, I had 21 hits in 25 times at bat, and the four outs were all line drives. I was in the zone. There have been times, believe it or not, that I have been preaching on a Sunday morning, and it got deathly quiet, and all eyes were on me, and everybody was listening to what I said. I was in the zone. Some of you know what that means. You watch a golfer like Tiger Woods, and he can do no wrong when he is in the zone. You've been there too when everything you do is just right. You're clicking on all cylinders. You do not miss a shot. You anticipate everything the opposition is going to bring up. You have a quick answer for every last single question. Like I said, anybody who's ever been in sports or has been performed in some public arena knows what it's like to be in the zone. But on the other hand, if you played sports, or you've ever been in a public arena, you know what it means to be out of the zone. I can tell you about times in baseball when the ball looked about as big as a pea. And I don't care if I was swinging a bat this wide, I wasn't going to hit it. There have been times when I have spoken to people when everybody was looking the other way, texting their friends, and just kind of wondering when on earth this is going to be over. Maybe I was out of the zone. Days when you can't think straight, when you can't perform well, and nothing seems to go your way. Well, guess what? When it comes to the Christian life, there is a zone that we can be in too. It is a zone that makes it easier for us to walk in faith. It's a zone that enables us to live in obedience. It's a zone in which we can see our prayers answered, even our most what seem like outrageous prayers answered. It's a zone in which we can experience joy and we can handle any adversity that comes down the road. And if you paid attention to what Dennis read to you before, it is a zone that Jesus challenges each and every one of us to live in. Now, what is this zone? At the top of your message outline, I've taken part of the text, and it says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. Now, the message translation puts it this way. It says, Live in me, make your home in me, even as I make my home in you. Or if you want to go back to... Uh, the distant past, when more people read the King James Version of the Bible, it said, Abide in me, even as I also abide in you. Now the question is, what does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean to 
remain in me as I remain in you, or live in me like I live in you, <coughs> what does he mean when he says, abide in me? Well, the nice thing is you can pick up your Greek Testament and you can hunt up that word and find out what abide means. And abide means where you stay. Kind of reminds me of that story of Ruth when she told her mother-in-law, where you live, I will live. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. God says, folks, wherever you live, I want to live. I want you to live in me. Now, of course, if you call yourselves a Christian, if you are indeed a Christ follower, you already know that God is with you everywhere. He's promised that. Never will I leave you or forsake you, or I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus says to his disciples, I need to go back up into heaven. It's ascension day, but I am going to leave what behind? The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, you're going to have me with you all the time. The problem is we sometimes forget to acknowledge his presence. My life verse is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. I go roaring down the road sometimes, and guess what? My paths are as crooked as a snake. Why is it? It's sometimes because I just don't acknowledge the fact that he's there. I think I'm describing most of you. You forget about him. You get up in the morning. We set an alarm clock. Isn't that a horrible thing? Alarm. We just kind of jerk right out of bed in the morning. We dash right into our day. We blaze through the day at breakneck speed. We move from one crisis to another crisis. We drain ourselves out of all the peace and joy God wants for us until at the end of the day, we just kind of hit the sheets and leave skid marks because we are so tired and we are worn out and we are exhausted. And we just say, oh man, I can't wait till Friday. Friends, Jesus says we don't need to live that way. And we really don't need to live that way. We can experience this abundance of life and the fullness of joy, but he says if you're going to do that, what are you going to do? You've got to abide in him. You've got to live in him. You have to practice the presence of Jesus. You've got to be in the zone. There is a form of Christianity that has recently become more popular. It's called Celtic Christianity. C-E-L-T-I-C. -C. Now some of you are going to say, oh, that's Celtics, like Boston Celtics. Okay, uh, but it's still pronounced Celtic. The Boston Celtics, by the way. One reason Celtic Christianity has experienced a resurgence in popularity in these last few years is that because many people have discovered that their lifestyles in, in the 2000s were in many ways similar to the Celts where they learned how to incorporate Christ into their daily lives. Now, Celtic communities were predominantly agricultural. That meant that everybody in the house, mom and dad and all the kids, worked in the fields, worked in the farm from sunrise to sunset. They did not have an abundance of free time. They didn't have televisions. They, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have their iPhones. They didn't have all that kind of stuff. They faced the challenges of some pretty harsh weather up in that area of England. They endured the stress of living in a predominantly non-Christian society. 
and they lived with the risk of being raided by either the, the, uh, uh, the Romans or the Irish or the Vikings. Life for these Celts was really hard. Yet the writings from this particular era showed that in spite of having a hard life, they somehow discovered the joy of being in the zone. They, it, they discovered the joy of abiding in Christ. They incorporated their faith into every last aspect of their life. Every daily activity turned out to be a celebration of God's presence. Now let me give you a couple examples. One of the first things that most people do in the morning is wash their face. Celts, when they would get up in the morning, made a religious ceremony out of it. They would splash their face with water three times, and they would say, May the this is the palm full of God for my life. This is the palm full of Christ for love. This is the palm full of the spirit of peace. Thank you, Trinity of grace. And then they would go and they would help their children get dressed. And their as their children got dressed, they would say, Even as I clothe my body with this wool, cover thou my soul with the shadow of thy wing. See, their lives were hectic. Their lives were busy. They didn't have time for long prayers. Throughout the day, however, every event turned out for them to be an opportunity to kind of fire off one of those little arrow prayers into heaven. So as they kindled the fire, as it became an opportunity for prayer, as they made the bed, they prayed, as they baked the bread, they prayed. As they herded the animals, they prayed. As they scattered the seed, they prayed. Everything they did was offered up to God in prayer. Now that's what I call being in the zone. That's abiding. That's remaining. That's living. It's taking all the hours of day. Now, I want you to think for a moment how much different your life, your individual life. I don't know what you all do every day. I don't know. I, I don't walk around. In spite of the fact that some of you say sometimes, Pastor, were you watching me all week because what you prayed about, or preached about today, you must have been watching me. Well, I got news for you. I got other things to do than besides watch you. But what do you do each and every day? I want you to imagine for a moment how much different your life might be if you actually included Jesus in every activity of the day. Let's say that tomorrow morning you wake up and the very first thing you do is say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then as you go and as you wash your face to say something like, in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, I greet this day. And as you shower, maybe you say, Lord, even as this water falls down on me and washes the old gunk off of me, the same is true of my baptism. And as you eat your food, as you say, you know, come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. As you went to work and you said, Lord, I just thank you so much for having this job. And now, Lord, give me clarity of thought and a clean heart and a clean mind as I work. See, every event would become sacred. And that's in spite of the fact that not everything strikes you as sacred. I mean, there's nothing particularly spiritual about making a bed. 
Nothing particularly spiritual about building a fire or driving to work or turning on your laptop or or crunching numbers or waiting on customers. There's nothing particularly spiritual about sitting in a classroom in school. But these can be sacred events. Sacred events, how? If we perform them in the presence of Jesus, if we kind of live in the zone, if we abide in him as we live in him. Now, I've got a friend who is a welder. He's a welder on an assembly line, uh, works for Caterpillar. And as I've talked to him about that job, to be quite honest, that strikes me as pretty boring. Something comes down the line and you kind of spot weld this in the next piece. I, I worked in a factory one year where I pulled the lumber through, pushed the button, it cut. I put the lumber through, pushed the button, and it cut. And I just said, you know, Dave, how do you, how do you take care of a job like that? And it kind of surprised me. He said, you know, it's true. At first, that job was really boring. It was really dull. But I found out that there's kind of a rhythm to the job. And I had plenty of time to think. And so all throughout the day, I would pray. And then I would kind of review some of the scriptures that maybe I had memorized or something I'd heard in the sermon on Sunday, and I would find myself singing to myself, and maybe sometimes even out loud in the factory, some of the praise songs we'd sung on Sunday. And he said, and you know, the day would go really quick. It was kind of like God was just there with me all day long. See, that's what Jesus says in the scriptures, isn't it? He says, abide in me and I will abide in you. He's saying, folks, if you will include me in the details of your life, I will fill your life with my presence. And see, when we do that, that's how you and I get in the zone. And we begin to, our lives begin to work more effectively. We begin to be a little bit more efficient than ever before. Now, in John chapter 15, Jesus gives us three ways we can see to it that that happens. Let me share some of those with you. Number one, Jesus says, your life will become more productive. I mean, how many of you, honestly, would like to be more productive tomorrow? Anybody? Oh, that one hand shot up upstairs just like that. Good. Somebody up there is listening. <laughs> I think we'd all like to be more productive, wouldn't we? We'd like to get more out of our day. We'd like to get more things done. Look at verse 5 of the text again. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Now, what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? Apples, bananas, pears, what? No. He is saying your work, whatever it will be, Matthew, it means plumbing. He's talking plumbing here. He says your work will become more productive. You'll do your job better. You'll get better results. And when that happens, Ted is happy. Well, God is happy, actually. Now, I like baseball. I've been... uh, I've actually been kind of a Dodger fan ever since they were in Brooklyn. Not so much anymore. But I can remember watching Oral Hershiser pitch for the Los Angeles Dodgers in the 1988 World Series. Some of you already know what I'm going to tell you about. The camera kept focusing on him in the dugout during the World Series. It was the most important game of his life. It was one of the most important games of the season. Yet they saw, showed him in the dugout. He was completely relaxed. He was sitting on the bench. His head was leaned back and his eyes were closed. But his lips were kind of moving a little bit. 
No one realized it at the time, but later he explained to everyone what he was doing. He was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and he told Johnny Carson that he was praying in the dugout, and he was singing hymns like Amazing Grace. And he said it helped him stay focused during the game. Now, I want you just to forget for a moment that this is a sports celebrity playing in front of millions of people for millions of dollars. In reality, all he was was an employee working for a business, getting paid to do the job. But while he was on that job, what was he doing? He was in the zone. He was practicing the presence of Christ. And as a result, he did a better job. See, abiding in Jesus, I want to suggest you will also make you more productive as well. You'll bear more fruit as an employee. You'll bear more fruit as a parent or as a spouse or a friend or whatever. When you abide in Christ, you put yourself in the position for God to bless whatever it is you're doing. Now, when Jesus said you're going to bear a lot of fruit, I know some of you probably thought of the other fruit in the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He says, yeah, that too. Abiding in me, living in me, making your house in me, my house in you, getting in the zone, living in my presence causes those qualities of love and joy and peace, all of that stuff to bloom and grow as well. This morning in Bible class, Claire Ayers was showing pictures of her mission trip to Honduras. And, and one of the things she had a lot of pictures of, those of you that were there, were what? Flowers. And flowers, when they are in bloom, are absolutely beautiful. Guess what? When a Christ follower is in full bloom out in the community, he or she is beautiful. You are hard to resist. Everybody wants to take a look. Everybody wants to take a sniff. They want to see what you are all about. When you abide in Christ, when you're in the zone, he promises that you will bear not just fruit, not some shriveled up little kumquat. He says you will bear much fruit. You will become more productive. Here's the second thing he says. I'm interpreting. Okay, this is what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know much about gardening, and I know even less about pruning. I think of two examples in the last couple of years. At our previous church, we had a lot of trees around the property. Uh, one, one year, my good friend Gene came, and he pruned all the trees in the back. And when I went to my office window, I was on the second floor, I looked out, I thought he'd killed those trees. But next, guess what? The next year, better looking. Do you remember this last year when they came and thinned out the trees on our church property? And came over to the parsonage and thinned out the trees. When they were working on those trees, Nancy called me. She said, have you seen what they're doing to the trees? And I said, I'm coming over. And she's like, they're, they're cutting out so much. I said, look, on the side it says, professional tree trimmers. <laughs> I mean, it looked like they were killing these trees. 
they came back bigger and better and more beautiful than ever. Why? Because a professional understood the principle of pruning. See, life is a process of pruning in which we learn to separate not only the good from the bad, leave the bad behind, but then take the good and pull out of that what is even best or better. It's a process in which we weed out those things that don't allow us to maximize our lives. As we get busier, what happens? Our lives get busier, our plates get fuller, and we have to kind of determine what to toss out of our lives. We have to determine what things are in the best interest of our lives, what aren't, what is going to be to the glory of God and what keeps us from doing the glory of God. And, and that process is not always easy. In fact, think about this. I could ask Derek this question. Derek, if a tree could talk, what would it say while it was being pruned? Help. Right. Probably help or maybe what? How about ouch? <laughs> ouch. It would say that. Why? Because it's a painful process, but it's necessary, and in the end, it pays off. Now, when you're living in the zone, when you're abiding in Christ, God will do the pruning for you if you allow him. If you take your hands off the steering wheel, God will prune. Let me give you some examples. God can prune time-wasting activities out of your life. Now, I'm not talking about leisure activities, because that, that's necessary for us all to have some time to you know, mess around, play around, whatever. But God helps us get rid of those things that are not really beneficial to us or the kingdom of God. Again, very easy to get overcommitted into a dozen or more different things that simply are not the best use of your time in God's kingdom. God will help you weed those out if you let him. Another area would be destructive relationships. See, when a relationship is not good for you, God will pluck that baby right out of there. Now, I'm not talking that he's going to get rid of all your non-Christian friends because, believe me, some of you have way too many Christian friends. In fact, that's all you got. You need some of those non-Christian ones, too. But what he's going to help you do is get rid of those friendships where you don't have the influence that you ought to have, relationships in which God is not being given first place. And sometimes, let's be honest, even amongst Christians, we get our holy little huddles together. And sometimes what goes on in those holy little huddles is not a very God-pleasing activity. And sometimes God says, maybe we better do a little plucking here, a little bit of pruning. See, if the relationship does not build you up, if it doesn't build God up, it's not worth having. God also will prune your sinful behavior. He doesn't really want to allow any sin to live in your life. When you begin to abide in him, guess what? When you're in the zone, sin becomes an unwelcome guest in your house. Now, we're all vulnerable to sin of one kind or another. There's nobody here. I shared with some of you, I think, a Bible class a couple of weeks ago. Nancy asked me, I'd come home for lunch and the doorbell rang and she asked me whether I would like to uh, visit with two Mormons. And I said, you betcha. <laughs> and I went outside for about 30 or 45 minutes and I debated with them. And, and I kind of know the ins and outs of their faith and their lack of Christianity and everything else like that. And after I kind of played around with them for a while, I decided to turn my attention to another subject. And I said, 
So let's talk about baptism. That's a good thing to talk about today if we get a baby today with baptism. And I said, you guys baptize for the dead, right? Yeah. I said, I read an article once where it said Martin Luther was a Mormon. And they said, well, if somebody was baptized for him, yeah, he would technically be a Mormon. And I laughed. I said, that's, that's really stupid. I know I shouldn't use that word, but I use that word a lot. I said, that's just stupid. I said, what about baptizing babies? He said, oh, no, absolutely not. I said, now, why on earth would you not baptize a baby? Are you ready for this? He told me, because babies do not sin. Were our kids, nobody's saying anything. Were ours the only ones who ever sinned? Any of you raised sinful babies? They are the most selfish, little, self-centered, little things. It's all about me, 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 feed me, change me, hold me, cuddle me, goo-goo me, 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 me. And I said, oh, okay, when do they start sinning? Eight years old. <laughs> who has an eight-year-old? I know who has an eight-year-old. <laughs> you were scared because a week ago she was only seven. <laughs> and you'd already seen the fruit of her labors up to that time. Well, how foolish is that, folks? We all sin. The Bible says, in sin I was conceived, in sin I was born. There is none that doeth good and sinneth not. I mean, read your Bible, for heaven's sake. And we all got it. We all got it. We got it from birth. We got anger. We got self-control issues. We've got laziness problems. We've got lust problems. We've got gossip problems. But whatever it is, guess what? God wants it out, and he wants it out from the day of birth. That's why he instituted baptism, where he could ignite the faith in that heart of that little one. And when you give him a chance, God will get out those little snippers. Here's a third way that you can benefit from living in the zone. Your prayers will become more effective. Your prayers will become more effective. Verse 7. Oh, I love this verse. But most of you don't read the whole verse. It says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. I heard about some parents who left their kids with a babysitter. When they got home, the babysitter said, you know, Billy had a hard time uh, getting to sleep tonight, so I talked to him for a while and he finally drifted off. Parents were very pleased with that. And then the babysitter said, and oh, by the way, I promised him that you would buy him a pony tomorrow. <laughs> now, some people think God's promises are like that babysitter's promises. Comforting words spoken with absolutely no intention of ever fulfilling the promises. Even pastors are guilty of doing this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors say something like this. Well, this is what Jesus said, but here is what Jesus meant. You ever hear anybody say that? This is what Jesus said, but I'm sure this is what Jesus meant. Well, folks, this morning, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to tell you 
exactly what Jesus meant when he made this promise to us. Are you ready for it? Here's what he meant. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. In other words, he meant exactly what he said. Now, some of you only read part of that verse. It's like, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. I've been asking forever. He's not giving me diddly. You skipped part of it. Remember, every promise has got a premise. If you abide in me, if my word abides in you. Where are you at in that, folks? But how can God make such an extravagant promise? How could he ever say unequivocally that you will get whatever you desire? Well, it's pretty simple. When you abide in Christ, guess what? Your desires suddenly become what they should be. When Christ is not the center of your life, if he just kind of, you kind of just kind of bring him in for an hour on Sunday and then take him out and put him on the shelf in the lobby on the way out, guess what? You're going to live in constant conflict with your desires. You want what you shouldn't want. You don't want what you should want. And when you're not living in the zone, when you're not abiding in Christ, you don't know what to ask for. You're not sure what you should have or what you shouldn't have. But see, the Bible says abiding in Christ causes you to change, but it comes from the inside out. Your desires suddenly become completely overhauled so that you pray, when you pray for material things, for example, you pray out of need and not out of greed. Your prayers become less self-centered and self-serving because you know that what he gives you are going to be used for his glory. Your prayers now are seen kind of through the eyes of Jesus. You, you have the perspective of a mature believer. Abiding in Christ, abide, living in that zone, gives you the wisdom suddenly, that godly wisdom, to know what to ask for. So abide in Christ Ask for whatever you desire. It'll be given to you. The miracle is not only in the answered prayer. It's in the change that God will work in the desires of your heart. I'm just here this morning, friends, to tell you that if you want your life to flow more, more smoothly, if you want your life to be more productive, if you want to be more selective and even more effective, hey, folks, just learn to live in the zone. Abide in Christ. Acknowledge his presence in every event. Recognize that he is with you every step of the way. Abide in him. Stay in the zone. And you'll never be the same again. Ninety years First Lutheran's been around. The sign out front says, this far by faith. My prayer is that we be in the zone as well. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for calling us into your family. We know that uh, as we live in the zone of your presence, as we abide in you and your word abides in us, that our lives will become more productive. We also know that we will become more selective and that our prayers can even become more effective. Lord, that is our prayer as we pray, even in the name of Jesus. Amen.